Hey guys, I'm Pete. And I'm Alex. And you're listening to the Kick Push Pivot Podcast. I'm a former Fortune 500 consultant dedicated to the idea of innovation and growth. And I used to manage marketing tours for the Rolling Stones, focused on creating one-of-a-kind customer experiences. On this podcast, we interview people faced with the decision to kickstart innovation, push through doubt, or pivot to something new. We hope you find something inspiring or encouraging as you listen. All right. Hello and welcome everybody again to another episode of Kick Push Pivot. My name is Alex Gallup and I'm here as always with my co-host, Mr. Pete Mackey. Say what's up to the people, Pete. Hey, Alex. Looking forward to another show today. Definitely. We've got a good one for you today. We've got Dr. Faisal Mirza all the way from Santa Cruz, California, which if it's anything like San Ramon this morning or today, it's been just absolutely downpouring and dumping. I don't know if that's your experience out there in Santa Cruz today. Oh, yeah, absolutely. My son's tennis class got canceled, which saves the drive, but not no tennis. <laughs> well, maybe it's time to get into pickleball then, because you might still be able to play that. <laughs> uh, possibly. Yeah, yeah probably. I actually did get into pickleball recently. Uh, that is true. Who hasn't, uh, right? It's like everybody's playing pickleball. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. But welcome, Dr. Mirza. It's great to have you on the show. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. And just to let everybody, all the listeners know, Dr. Mirza, we connected over LinkedIn, is a orthopedic surgeon, an entrepreneur, and a clinical associate professor at UCSF. Also a champion of LinkedIn because he's all over the place and he's got all kinds of great posts. So if you're, if you're interested in healthcare at all and you want to follow Dr. Mirza on LinkedIn, it's a great follow. But just to start off, Dr. Mirza, what are you up to right now? What are you currently working on? And um, what can you share with the with the listeners today? Sure. Yeah. And thank you for that, uh, you know, glowing introduction. I don't know <laughs> if I'm a champion, but hey, <laughs> let's go with it. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, currently I'm doing part-time clinical and we're building a startup. I also do some lectures and focusing on trying to promote physician innovation, because I think it's critical in today's healthcare. I won't go too much into the startup, but uh, I have a digital health you startup. You got to keep it proprietary, right? You don't want anyone yeah, exactly, want the exactly. wrong ear to tear in this stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it's a digital health startup for wearable intelligence, and uh, we're basically trying to keep joints healthy long-term. Very cool. Wearable intelligence for joints. So more than just the Apple Watch, it, take, it takes it a step further. Yeah. No comment. <laughs> I don't want to offend Apple. I don't want to offend Apple or say that we're better or worse, right? <laughs> Alex, we're getting we're getting too hot and heavy already. There you go. I'm just I'm just, I'm just poking the bear. Can't poke the bear. Oh man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there's already gonna be a dad joke battle brewing between Dr. Mirza and Pete today. So uh, strap in everybody that's listening. It's be oh, a good one. I know. I've heard big things. Well, orthopedic surgeons are pretty funny. Have you heard why? Why? Because they always deal in the humorous. Ah, uh, that's uh, <laughs> a go. good, that's a really good dad joke. <laughs> Score one for that's Pete. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah. Dr. Yeah. Mirza, whenever you're ready. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, I'm not very good at expressing jokes unless it's to my kids. Like anytime I've tried to replicate or say a joke, I'm definitely not the guy that does a joke well or remembers them. But uh, sometimes I say stuff around the kids and I say, oh, that's funny. And that's when they reply, dad, 
Yeah, uh. well, <laughs> that's a true testament to your skills. Kids get the brunt of it because, yeah. <laughs> you know, my son hurt himself the other day and I took him to an orthopedic surgeon. He broke his arm. And then the doctor was talking to me and says, does it hurt? And Tad says, yeah, it hurts. The doctor said, it's going to be to be a, it's going to be a, okay. To be okay. I can't say it. <laughs> I can't even say it. That one's pretty borderline, Pete. I don't know. It's that one might. Okay. <laughs> it's going to be okay. 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 I get it. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly, never went to medical school. I can't pronounce my, my bones. But yeah. I know you did a good job. To be in the fibia. You got to get those ones correct. Yeah. Fibula. Oh, see, I'm always Not mixing those up. Okay. Yeah. okay. We, uh, it's we, all we good. Like, it's we all get good. the content here. Let's, let's yeah. move on here. Too many cooks in the kitchen. Are showing our ignorance. I, I gave uh, I gave a talk about all the bones in your body to kindergartners a few years back, and uh, mm -hmm. that was fun. So you got to start early so they remember the bones and joints uh, later in life. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. So let's take it a step back a little bit and take it to you know where you where you got started in healthcare. I mean, was this something that ran in your family? You have a family of physicians, or was it? something you got into in college or how did you get started in this arena? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, I guess I could say it started in the family, but my extended family were actually from a line of engineers until my dad. My dad was also an orthopedic surgeon okay. and he trained in Edinburgh and uh, came to Canada and then the U.S. And I grew up in Canada. I trained there at uh, University of uh, Western Ontario and McMaster. So I did my undergrad, med school, residency, and fellowship, uh, all in Canada. Okay. And then I found my way out to the West Coast, and I joined uh, Stanford uh, at the VA in Palo Alto, where uh, I was a clinical assistant professor for a number of years. Mm -hmm. So my desire in healthcare really stemmed from my desire to not only help, but actually fix things. You know, I think the inherited part is the hand-eye coordination. You know, I helped my dad build all sorts of stuff growing up. So I think that helped. And I think even in med school, the thing that caught my eye was orthopedic surgery. And so that's where I followed my train. Interesting. So like putting things together and building things with your dad built up the hand-eye coordination to where you thought, all right, well, being a surgeon is, you know, taking that a step further. And I think I'd be really good at this. That's kind of what the thought process was or. Actually, I wouldn't say that that was the thought that went into my mind. I think I took the hand-eye coordination really for granted. It wasn't actually until I was doing a plastics rotation and I was just doing what I normally do because I had read about it, taught it before, seen it before. Mm -hmm. And I was basically doing this procedure and the surgeon goes to me, have you ever thought about plastic surgery? You have really good hands. I had never thought about it before. And then other times I'm suturing or taking care of uh, various parts and uh, other people commented on it. And I think mm. that's what happens with surgeons is not just me. I mean, any surgeon, you know, there is innate uh, hand-eye coordination sure. that's there. But I didn't make that link until I did my orthopedic rotation. Interesting. And then I did some research and then uh, I was at Stanford for a while. And then my interest in bone health really picked up at the VA Palo Alto. Because taking care of uh, patients with paraplegia 
really ingrained in me the idea that bone health is critical because when they're not using a lot of their arms and legs, they lose bone fast. And so if they break something, putting it back together or say repairing a rotator cuff, mm-hmm. when you try and repair it and suture it and put anchors in to essentially cinch it down, it really doesn't hold well because it's more like Swiss cheese than it is like good quality bone that you can anchor into. Huh. Is the bone health, you know, part of that overall health as well? Because I mean, I would assume with a paraplegic patient, you know, if they're not using their legs or something like that, then, you know, what is the benefit then to to continuing to feed the bones and making the bones healthy? Does that like, does it seep into the rest of the body that kind of um, does it create a, a problem for the rest of the body if those bones are not healthy? Oh, even, yeah. No, they're not necessarily absolutely. using them. Yeah, absolutely. Because there are times where because they have paraplegia, they will transfer from bed to chair to wheelchair to their vehicle uh, with their hand controls. But sometimes they may end up with a fracture of their leg and they can't feel it. So then how do you take care of that? So you can't fix things in traditional means. And I was taking care of uh, some shoulder problems with patients with paraplegia and repairing their rotator cuff. And just to coordinate and facilitate that required a really large multidisciplinary effort. So in healthcare, there's a lot of care coordination, especially for these vulnerable patients, whether Mm -hmm. they're paraplegia, deaf, blind, children, uh, various uh, minorities and diversities. So there's all sorts of vulnerable populations. And so it really requires much more care coordination. So in that case, if you can't use your shoulders, how are you going to transfer if you can't use your legs? And so that became critical for them. But what it it really sent me down the path of understanding bone health. And then that's how I ended up at the FDA. I left Stanford and received a FDA research grant as principal investigator on device-related orthopedic surgeries. And we were specifically Mm. looking at outcomes and assessing how these outcomes can have a minimum clinically important difference. And the father of minimum important difference is Gordon Guyot from uh, McMaster, who actually I, I took a course with when I was there. Cool. And in any case, without diving into that, mm-hmm. that really made me realize how important good solid foundation is for anything you do in orthopedic surgery, or for any type of mobility. Solid foundation of the bone itself is what exactly. you're saying, right? Exactly. And, and what can someone do? I mean, what are some of the things that you found throughout your research that someone can do to increase their bone health? I'm sure it's more than just drinking 2% milk, right? Well, <laughs> absolutely. So there's a lot of research on it. And I would definitely recommend that the audience go to the experts, sure. National Osteoporosis uh, Foundation, International Osteoporosis Foundation, as well as the American Academy has a, a site called On the Bone, which is all about bone health. What ends up happening is it's, it's undertreated. And so when it's undertreated, you end up with fractures, spine fractures. And as we age, those fractures may go unnoticed and they affect your health. Right. So you end up with a hip fracture when you're 70 or 60, and you may have cardiac, lung, heart conditions. Now, Here's the dad joke coming right now. Here we go. 
<laughs> the reason the heart exists is to pump blood to the bone. I'm kidding. <laughs> so, I was waiting for it. I was waiting for it. Yeah. So I see that well, my jokes. See, I told you, I, my jokes never land well. So, <laughs> you know, the orthopedic surgeons love to say that. But uh, essentially, what ends up happening is that your entire cardiovascular system is already in shock because fractures happen not because you plan it, it's not elective surgery. Mm -hmm. You may, may not be prepared for it. You may be dehydrated. You may have untreated heart, lung, kidney conditions. And so, in fact, having poor bone health ends up being untreated and leads to high mortality and morbidity. And so that's another challenge. And, and, and honestly, that's a whole podcast on its own. I've, I've sure. lectured a lot on that. Yeah, it's an interesting topic for sure, because yeah. I'm sure there's breaks in bones that could get infected as well, right? And some stuff like that that could then lead into different problems for the rest of the body. Absolutely. But I mean, in terms of the elderly, fragile fracture patients, it's mostly some type of cardiovascular blood clot, heart hmm. attack, uh, bronchitis, pneumonia, mm -hmm. urinary tract infections. A good orthopedic surgeon never has an infection. Just kidding. <laughs> That's an orthopedic joke. You can have complications across the board. If you don't have a complication in surgery, you just haven't been in practice long enough. Yeah. Uh, I would say that um, if you ever meet a surgeon that says nothing has ever gone wrong, think twice because they just, you know, things happen. You can't right. predict things, right? A diabetic patient is more likely to get infected. And so that can be a challenge. Yeah. In terms of the bone health, to actually treat it, there's non-pharmacologic and pharmacologic things you can do, as well as just active mobility. Mm. There's a lot of resources out there in terms of having a, you know, muscle and bone and joint exercises gotcha. because the muscle stresses the bone, mm -hmm. which because of the forces acting on the bone causes the bone tissue on the outside, the periosteum, to react which stimulates osteocytes and osteoblasts, which are bone cells, to then help secure that location and build the bone. And weight-bearing is critical. So if you're not weight-bearing, standing, or doing impact loading, that's always a challenge. All that bench press that Pete's doing in the gym, that's really helping him. That's right. I that's mean, right. Yeah. like how optimistic you are, Alex. <laughs> Being a dad of two small kids, the gym is a foreign concept to me right now. Yeah. However, you just lift three year olds. Yeah, I just, you know, got 12 ounce curls that happen quite often. Yeah. <laughs> I love all the knowledge you bring to the, to the show today, but I know that you also have a kind of technical side to you that exists in the kind of startup world. So yeah. Could you share about how you pivoted from your, your intense medical training and practitioner work into the kind of technology space? how that came about? Oh, absolutely. And I would say it first started when I was at Stanford. I was writing some research grants and I actually uh, wrote an innovation grant for this amazing device. Of course, I'm going to say it's amazing. Um, that would actually improve bone mineral density in patients with paraplegia. It didn't get funded because, you know, it was a politics, a crazy, no, it's right. well, it is politics. Yeah. But it was a crazy idea that, uh, you know, I honestly think it would have worked. Uh, but in any case, that started that aspect. So I had some papers on how you can improve the fixation of anchors and screws in bone. So we used various products for that. 
And then after I left the FDA, I went to Amgen where we treated bone health. I was a global bone health medical director with Amgen. And um, so we were treating the pharmacologic side of bone health. And I'll tell you, there were an incredible learning curves for me in my career. I mean, you know, you graduate, you think you know it all, you finish your uh, surgical residency, and then you go into teaching and then you realize, oh my God, these kids are just hungry for information. I got to know more. Right. And then you go to FDA. And I would say going to the FDA was the steepest learning curve. I had to ramp up so quickly Hmm. because aside from the published data, there is so much data that's within the FDA from companies that's proprietary. Mm. So there is so much we don't know in the public mm-hmm. or in the literature that's actually proprietary. And the FDA sees it because it's regulatory submissions. Uh-huh. So it was going to the FDA and ramping up on your knowledge that kind of got you more interested in the technical side of things? Yep, absolutely. I mean, it flowed well. So after I left Amgen, I said, I need to do a startup. And so a burgeoning idea, especially after leaving Amgen and understanding challenges with bone health, I said, hey, let's do something about building bones or maybe healing fractures better. So a couple of colleagues, we got together, did a biotech startup. That didn't quite go the way we planned. I was in private practice at the time. But here's the thing. As an innovator, as an entrepreneur, you got to fail your first startup. You know, so we got it under, uh, I got it under my belt right away. It was great. But continuing on in my practice, any idea I've had came from taking care of patients. Mm -hmm. My first patent was taking care of rotator cuff injury patients. And then subsequent to that, not only did I have a a knee injury, uh, patients with knee injuries come and see me. And I treat them, but there's challenges with that. And so the idea to create some type of technology to improve recovery of joint problems and joint diseases, and even solutions to try and reduce incidence of injuries. And that's where the current startup dived into. Mm-hmm. What, what I realized is whatever technology you have, the principal foundation of all technology is the data. You know, Tesla is the best example. You know, a lot of people call Tesla a car company, but it's actually a data company. You know, they have so much information about all the roads everywhere, and it was all from the utility of the vehicles and the people driving them. Interesting. And that's not all Tesla is, but, you know, uh, an easy example to describe. Without getting into my digital health startup in detail, what we realized is that the quality of data that's coming out for any type of human mobility joints is is limited. Mm. There's only so much you can get, but there is so much more that's happening. And that ties in well to the idea that, hey, when the patient comes to your clinic, it's artificial motion, right? You're kind of going to the clinic, you're going to the office, and you're doing things because a physician, provider, practitioner asks you to do things or physical therapy or even before you get there. So, but you don't do that in your normal life. 
what do you do in your normal life? Your activities of daily living, your sport, your work. You know, going into a clinic, sitting down for a couple of hours because all doctors run late, you know. <laughs> you were on time for this this today, though, so I appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, there, there, there you go, there you go. You were on time today. Yeah, that's because I'm part-time clinical. <laughs> yeah, he's part-time. Right. The full-time right. guys you got to worry Part about. Yeah, exactly. In, in any case, so what ends up happening is it's better to have information from where the actual patients are moving where they're actually mobile and whatever it is, how they take their medication at home versus how they're taught to take their medication in a clinic setting. Mm -hmm. Right now, probably if you don't have an artificial intelligence startup, uh, you just haven't you know, thought about it enough. I mean, everyone- There we go, there's the buzzword. Yeah, so everyone has an AI startup and we are doing machine learning in our startup. But the challenge is that ultimately in order to learn on the data it receives, you have to have high quality data. So if you take health records, greatest example is big, large health systems often use Epic or Cerner, various types of healthcare records. Mm -hmm. And without putting any of them you know, down or elevating any of them, you know, being agnostic to the healthcare system is the healthcare records were designed for coding and billing. They weren't designed for patients. They weren't designed for physicians. It's actually completely backwards. So we're doing now what the accountants and coders and billers are doing. We're putting in information that the coders and the billers and Medicare CMS wants to see mm -hmm. instead of putting the most meaningful information. And when you're running a busy clinic, because if you're a qualified, good surgeon, you're going to have a lot of patients and you're not going to be able to keep up. So, you know, you, you, you're not dictating all the time right after you see the patient or during the consult. And there's plenty of startups doing that, whether it's vision mobility or listening audio devices, transcription, all sorts of things. I mean, there's a plenty of technology companies out there. But what gets into the health record a lot of times is specifically there just to satisfy coding and billing. Wow. That is interesting. And again, I'm, I'm not dissing any type of data mining effort. Right. Which makes sense, though, because, you know, they need to get paid. The doctors want to get paid and they probably want to spend as little time on the coding and billing portion of that as they possibly can so they can maximize their time with the patient, right? Absolutely. Even if you get your own biller. I mean, I had my own biller for a while and it gets expensive having your own in-house billing. Eventually I farmed it out to a billing company and now there's AI-based billing companies, AI-based transcription services. There's a lot of um, you know, intelligence that's trying to compile all this information. Sure. But there's a lot that happens in an encounter with a patient that is not necessarily documented. Just gets missed, yeah. A lot of times patients want to see their data and then it becomes, well, who owns the data? Well, if it's the patient that you're treating, who owns it? I mean, that's a, a whole other you know, aspect of uh, data is data ownership. And one area that's really unknown right now is the IP behind what these generative AIs are producing. So whether it's ChatGPT or whether it's generative video uh, graphics AI products, mm -hmm. you're giving them information. Say you say, I want a car 
designed so that it has five wheels that can fold in and let it fly. Well, it designed something for you. Well, who owns that? Does the AI own it? Do you own it? Because it came from design ideas in the Ethernet network, yeah. like who owns the data? That's an interesting question. And then it comes down to ownership. And I think the music industry is well ahead of everyone else on this. Photographers sort of have ways of tagging their images, but if the generative AI is seeing millions, probably billions of photos and coming up with its own product, well, yeah. that what's the source material? Sure. So do you reference the source material? Who do you give credit to the source material? And I've heard talking points on all sides, mm -hmm. you know, and there's actually three sides of it, right? You got the user who's asking the AI, you have the AI bot or GPT or whatever mm -hmm. it is. And then you have the creators of sure. the original uh, sort of uh, nexus of information. I think, you know, the, the challenge, of course, is a lot of things can give you sparks of innovation. You know, you can get an idea and it came from somewhere, you know. And so just because you got an idea looking at a Tesla and you said, I'm going to create a car similar but not identical, it gave you an idea to do something. Or say you got an idea from a, any car, but it was specifically related to some other apparatus you were building. But there was something about the design or the latch of the door that sparked an idea, say, for a toaster you were making, whatever it is. So that's why the generation of an idea or the spark of innovation it's hard to you can't really track that and, and you can't track it, it but it's hard to, to yeah exactly ownership yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense. so that's a bit of a challenge the data data and healthcare quality of data ownership of data we're in that we're in a data boom right now because it's like the new oil yep those ai models yeah so as we kind of wrap up the podcast for today's listeners is there a nugget that you can give the audience that just highlights you know if you're thinking about healthcare, if you're thinking about data, here's the one thing you should be learning more about, you should be looking out for, you should be learning about. Is there anything you can kind of give to the audience as a nugget? Sure, absolutely. And, um, you know, my passion is innovation. So uh, I would say that anyone that has an idea, if you believe in it, go for it. If everyone is saying it won't work, that's when you should drive it forward because they don't know your idea. And when you take that idea to fruition, just remember that there's a lot of information gathering. In order to understand what you need to build, you have to talk to the customer who's using it. And so that's also very important, is don't build something and then find a customer by data mining and saying, hey, this is a product that doesn't exist. Let's find a, a location for it. You should actually look for the problem, identify what those challenges are, and then really understand it, and then just gather as much information as you can. So that's one component of the data, is how you gather it. Mm -hmm. The other component is the quality. You know, the quality matters. And again, not to dis uh, any wearable, but if a wearable is capturing temperature once every 10 milliseconds, 
well, that may not be ideal for something else, like a remote thermometer for turkey basting, right? You know, you, you want to, uh, you know, have it sooner. So whatever it is, I mean, in the end, it doesn't matter, but there's different utilities for different products. And so one product may want more information accessible um, than another. Yeah, I, I could I, I could keep <laughs> going. I mean, there's so many uh, aspects of it. I think that's I like that. Important. It's kind of it's basically like, you know, start with the problem and then and then develop the solution from there. Yeah. Um, and then start with real world data from the end user. Yeah. Um, and then and that probably sets you up for success is essentially what you're saying, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And thank you so much for being on today. I think we got a lot of good stuff um, for the listeners. And then, you know, one thing I wanted to circle back to that I really liked what you said was fail your first startup, which I think, you know, yep. as a as a podcaster with entrepreneurs on here all the time, that's that's just rings so true. There's never been one entrepreneur we've ever spoken to that's like, oh yeah, my first idea went really well and we're, we're still doing it. It's like, no, you gotta, you've got to fail at least a couple of times, maybe at least once, maybe a couple of times before you really figure things out and, um, and get going. So I like that because it can be kind of a barrier for entry for people to get into entrepreneurship because they're afraid of failure. But that's really kind of what needs to happen. You need to fail in order to, to be successful, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And then actually one last thing is when it comes to healthcare, that's where physicians really need to step in as part of the actual development. Mm. And we see plenty of massive companies failing what they tried to solve in healthcare. And that's because they don't know the patient. They don't, because the physician is part of that customer workflow. Mm -hmm. The patient is part of that customer workflow. You can't get that out of data mining. Right. Yeah, makes total sense. I'm all about physician innovators. If you hadn't figured that out, so physicians uh, it's first a, for healthcare. <laughs> no, well, not physicians first. It's patients first, but physicians often are within the system and have access to yeah. innovation. They need to be brought into yeah. the table, onto and, the table. And, and yeah, there's plenty absolutely. of patient innovators out there. So anyway, well, thank you so much for being on. And if anyone that's listening out there wants to get a hold of you. Is there you know, a website that they can go to or should they, they just reach out on LinkedIn or what's the best way to get a hold of you? Yeah, I would say uh, LinkedIn. I've uh, sort of curtailed the amount of uh, social media I try and do. It's hard to keep up with sure. email or, or LinkedIn. That's often the easiest. Uh, or yeah. you, know, you can uh, get a hold of me on my clinical side. That's always possible. Uh, yeah. Hopefully, you don't end up seeing me as a patient. <laughs> but if you do, happy to take care of you. Awesome. That's great. Well, thanks again for being on. Um, any final words, Pete, from you? Uh, nope. I just would say, make sure you pay attention to the trends in data and healthcare. Yeah. That's the future. Yeah. And that's where the big movement's going to happen. Look forward to hearing more about your startup as it matures and uh, provided we don't get sued by Apple. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and as it as it does mature, if you wanted us to put any kind of links to your websites or anything like that, please let us know. And and for all the listeners out there, if you're interested, we'll we'll keep you updated. Thanks again, Dr. Mirza, for being on the show. And thank you to all the listeners out there. Continue to like, follow, and subscribe on all of our social medias, and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening. 
Be sure to follow us on Facebook at KPP Podcast. If you'd like to be on the show or know someone who would make a great guest, feel free to reach out. Hope to see you next time.